The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. I'm not sure that any pastor of a previous generation would have highlighted Matthew 19, 1 through 12 before preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. But I did, because we are now in a very interesting cultural moment where what Jesus says in Matthew 19, 1 through 12 is among the most opposed teachings of all of the truth that Jesus teaches. And so to begin this morning's sermon, what I wanted you to do is watch a short video with me. This video is from 2017, when the Church of England was considering rejecting what Jesus says here in Matthew 19, and their assembly was addressed by Sam Albury. Let's watch that, and then I'll come back up. Oh, I guess we won't be able to watch that video. (laughs) So I can send it to you later, but let me pick up with you in Matthew 19. Even without the video, uh, I can show you the hostility that we now have. In short, Sam Albury, a minister in England, addresses the Church of England at their assembly and explains that he has been same-sex attracted his entire life, but has found Matthew 19 to be the most life-affirming and gospel-gracious truth that he had ever read. And so um, that truth was one that was considered inconceivable at the time. But how do we get to a point now historically that Matthew 19, 1 through 12, would seem so odd, that it would seem so bad? Why is what Jesus says so clearly now being received so poorly? I think the person who traces that best is Carl Truman in his recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I can't give an overview of that whole book, though he'll be doing so Thursday night at Southeastern in Wake Forest. But here's what I would share with you. It's really actually very simple. We have moved the locus of truth, goodness, and beauty to ourself. So now the way we determine reality is we use phrases like, live your truth. Or the way we determine morality is we say things like, you do you. Or the way we determine the good life is we say, follow your heart. Or the way we determine marital fidelity is we say things like, well, love is love. In fact, the only cardinal crime that you can commit in today's culture is to deny yourself, which is considered a denial of your own rights. I fear we now live in a cultural moment where we're going to get mad at our GPS for telling us to turn around. (laughs) We can't allow anything to correct us at any moment. If you have a bulletin in front of you, I've traced out Jesus' three main points here in Matthew 19. Here's how I believe they unfold. First, Jesus will teach unambiguously on gender, God's design is male and female. Second, Jesus will teach unambiguously on marriage. God's design is that a husband and wife become one flesh, united by God, not to be divided by people. Third, Jesus will teach on sexuality. God's design is for sex to be enjoyed within covenant marriage, but sexuality is not one's identity. Rather, our core identity is who we are in relationship to God, and that's verses 10 through 12. In order for us to grasp today's teaching, uh, we, we have to start by realizing this is the most condensed teaching that Jesus gives in all of the Bible on these matters of marriage, sexuality, and gender. 
So let's first go through the text to carefully trace what Jesus is saying. And then we're going to pause and consider common misconceptions or objections against what Jesus is saying. So sort of a two-part sermon today. Part one, tracing the text slowly and carefully. Part two, anticipating misconceptions and objections. Okay, now part one. Let's look here in Matthew 19, verse 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. He's continuing his same ministry, but now in Galilee. Verse 3, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. Notice the word test. The Pharisees' question then is not a sincere one. It's a gotcha question, which, by the way, Christians still get a lot of gotcha questions (laughs) that are not from a sincere place of learning. Their hope is to spark a debate that would cause Jesus to damage his reputation in the eyes of his followers. But if you remember from Matthew, do you remember someone who was recently beheaded for his speech on marriage and fidelity? And that person was John the Baptist. So surely they're hoping Jesus as well will be beheaded so they don't have to go through the trouble of crucifying him themselves. So in their question, they ask, continue in verse 3, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife, and don't miss this phrase, for any cause? I could spend a lot of time this morning, but I'll try to make it as simple as I can. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, says that if a man is to divorce someone because he finds indecency in her. Now that phrase, indecency, in context is referring to adultery or infidelity. But there was a school of interpretation that took that phrase, indecency, and allowed it to cover a catch-all. That is clearly the the interpretation they have, because look again in verse 3, they ask, is it permissible to divorce for any cause? Let me tell you some of the causes that they considered legitimate causes for divorce. One, according to the school of Hillel, was a wife burning her husband's supper. That was legitimate cause to be divorced. These are actually things that I'm reading that they wrote down. Another is a wife having physical defects like bushy eyebrows. That's another reason for legitimate divorce. Another, according to the rabbi Akiba, who was a Hillelite Pharisee in the first century, he wrote, it is permissible to divorce your wife if you find a prettier woman. That is literally what he taught. Josephus, who maybe you've heard about, especially if you went to seminary, he's a well-known Jewish historian. He was divorced himself and was a Pharisee. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but he wrote in his Antiquities, Volume 4, that you can divorce for any cause whatsoever. So don't miss what they're saying here in verse 3. They're arguing that you can dissolve marriage casually and callously whenever you want if you find a better option. I don't know if you realize this, but that school of thought still pervades. We have it in America today. It's common in Hollywood, if you want to follow it there. This week, in preparation for this sermon, I tried to Google short marriages in the public eye in America. Britney Spears, who I think is a singer, divorced someone named Jason Alexander after 55 hours of marriage. She cited her marriage as something silly and rebellious. I kept reading on the articles, and I wanted to see people who had been married less than 200 days. After I saw Nick, Nicholas Cage multiple times on the same list, I quit scrolling. I couldn't read it any further. Apparently, the view in verse 3 is one that we still have in our culture today, that you could divorce for any cause whatsoever, because who cares? This isn't a meaningful relationship. Let's just leave it if we find one that we would prefer elsewhere. 
So now notice what Jesus says in reply in verse 4. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And don't forget, please, that these are teachers of the law. So anytime Jesus says, Have you not read, he's needling them a little bit. You don't even know your Genesis. <laughs> and he's about to quote Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24 to people who are ostensibly seminarian-level teachers, and yet they don't even know the beginning, literally the beginning. So Jesus affirms what has been true from the beginning. Notice he affirms he who created. And who is that one who created? We know from John 1 that Jesus was there as God the Son, as the agent of creation. Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1 tells us the same. God the Father, through God the Son, by God the Spirit, brought all things into existence. From the beginning, this is what God's design has been. And notice this is what God's design remains. It was from the beginning and it still is. We didn't have verse 31 for some reason on the screen this morning, but in verse 31, at the end of Genesis 1, we read, God saw it and it was very good. So what God made when he made male and female was and is good. And by the way, he made it that way before the fall and it transcends the fall. What God designed was right, true, wise, loving, and good for all humans at all times. So verse 4, God made male and female. Notice God made two complementary but distinct genders. And he made them distinct yet complementary so that they could marry, which is why verse 5 goes on to explain why he made these two genders. Now we know it's not God's purpose for every human to marry. Jesus did not marry. He'll refer to singleness in verses 10 through 12. But he made two complementary genders so that marriage could happen. That's the point. So verse 5, and said, therefore, now Jesus is quoting them Genesis because they apparently have not learned it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The very reason God made male and female is so that the two could combine and become one flesh. The one flesh that male and female enjoy in holy marriage is a level of intimacy that cannot be duplicated or replicated in any other relationship. So the two leave and cleave to each other because there is no other relationship that is the same in its level of intimacy. That's not to say that other relationships aren't wonderful. You can and must have friends, but your intimacy with them must not be like your intimacy with your spouse. You can still live close to your parents. Almost everybody in the biblical world would have, but your relationship with your parents must not be in the same intimacy that is the relationship with your spouse. A husband and wife are made for each other in a literal anatomical one-flesh way, but also in a full-ored one-flesh way that no one else shares. Verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one. Genesis math is one plus one equals one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Please notice the divine intentionality here. This is something God has joined, and it is only in danger of being separated by us, not by him. God has brought something together, not by natural cause, but by supernatural grace, and yet sinful depravity can divide what he has joined. Yet that should not be the case. 
And so the commentator Craig Blomberg writes, God wants all marriages to be permanent. We dare not do anything to jeopardize them. So already we've seen in these first six verses that Jesus affirms God's intention from the original creation design for male, for female, for marriage. We've also seen that God's original intention still is his good design, and in fact, it is only human depravity that thwarts God's original intention. So now, verse 7, the Pharisees counter. If God wants us to stay married, then why does the law discuss divorce? A fair question. And they attempt to get Jesus in another gotcha. So verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? If you have a chance to read Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 this morning, what you'll notice is that it describes something that has occurred, and yet the Pharisees decide to interpret it as an invitation for it to occur. Deuteronomy 24 is describing what happens when because of sin, marriages break down. The Pharisees then take that as an encouragement to break marriages down. It'd be a little bit like if you're walking around the building this afternoon and you see a fire extinguisher. And on the fire extinguisher, it has explanation and it says, pull pin, aim at the base of fire, squeeze handle, sweep side to side. Now, if we're leaving this afternoon and I see you pull the pin and there's no fire, <laughs> why would you pull the pin? It's, not, it's telling you what to do if there's a fire, not what to do because you walked by and decided to pull it. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 is not describing what to do if you're in the mood for it, but what to do if a fire is already broken out. And so Jesus explains to them in verse 8, Moses is not commanding. Moses is discussing what to do when things have already broken down. Verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Notice how different their description is. Isn't it so important how we use our words? If you use loaded language, you can poison the discussion. In verse 7, they say Moses commanded to make it sound like God's commanding people to end marriages. In verse 8, Jesus explains, no, actually, it was because of sin that that even occurred. This is not God's design. So their description of it completely con contrast Jesus's description of it. And so now look again in verse 8. We have a second affirmation by Jesus of the from the beginning original design. Jesus is affirming what God has always intended. So now he continues in verse 9, if you look with me there. And I say to you, with the divine authority that Jesus has as God the Son, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The Greek word translated sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea. It is, to be fair, a somewhat broad term, but here it most likely refers to adultery or ongoing sexual sin that amounts to adultery. It, it amounts to the covenant being totally broken. Jesus says, in those cases, divorce may need to happen, though it's still not desirable. But otherwise, why would we pursue divorce? Jesus is encouraging us not to quickly or lightly pursue divorce. Now, this is not everything the Bible says about divorce. We also have 1 Corinthians 7, which talks about an unbeliever who deserts, who will not remain with you. But the big point here, I think, is obvious. God's original and intended design is what he wishes all of us to pursue and preserve 
as much as possible that we remain with one another, not seeking to divide what God has joined, understanding that God has joined it to preserve it. Let's state the matter as simply as possible. When God created the first male and female, he did not create them so that they could callously dissolve that relationship and seek another one. He created it so that they would be together as a design for life. And that is the design he has for all. God's design is that marriages persevere. And even the exception he's given here is an exception because of sin that's destroyed the covenant. Now this is a high calling. It's a high commitment to marriage. And so notice how his disciples respond in verse 10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Now remember, they were in a time where the rabbis were literally saying, if your wife's eyebrows are too bushies, just, just move on for another woman. So when Jesus explains, no, you're to stay, remain, their attitude is, well, perhaps we would be better off to remain single. But what Jesus says in verse 11 through 12, I admit, was the hardest for me to grasp this week. For the first couple of days of study, I felt like I was hitting my head against a concrete wall. Lord, how does verse 11 and 12 fit? Here, I think, is the answer. They're asking in verse 10, well, maybe it's just better to remain single then. Jesus now in verse 11 and 12 says, well, there are some who remain single, but the reason they remain single is not because they're afraid of the high commitment level of marriage, but because they've prioritized me in the kingdom. So now verse 11, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying. He's referring to their statement in verse 10. He is not referring to everything he has said so far. He's referring to not everyone can remain single, but only those to whom it is given. This is the gift of God's grace that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7. But now notice verse 12. If you think the single life is God's calling for you, it must not be because you're afraid of marital commitment and its seriousness. It must be because you're devoted to ministry and its urgency. So look in verse 12. There are eunuchs who have been born so from birth. Some people are born that way, born without the sexual reproductive identity or capacity that others have. So they've not necessarily made that choice for the kingdom or for ministry. It's just the way they're born. There are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by men. If you know the Old Testament well, you know a book like Esther, it was common for kings to make a man a eunuch to remove his sexual capacity so that he could stay with the harem, so that the king felt comfortable with him around the harem. Then notice both of the first two groups aren't necessarily being celibate for any spiritual reasons. But now the last group is different. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus does not literally mean that he's encouraging anyone to castrate themselves. He's simply describing what he's described in Matthew 5 already in the Sermon on the Mount. It is better for you to cut out your right eye or to cut off your right hand than to engage in lust. And here what he's saying in verse 12, it is better to metaphorically deny yourself than to live in a sinful way that would keep you, notice from the next phrase, from the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now what principle should we possibly learn from verse 12, a verse about eunuchs that seems strange and odd and a little bit bizarre? We should learn that all of us should fulfill Matthew 16, 24, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus for whatever temptation is unique to us. 
whatever sexual temptation is unique to us. Here in verse 12, here are eunuchs who deny a temptation that could keep them from the king and his kingdom for the sake of the king and his kingdom. Now Jesus ends verse 12 with the phrase, receive it. Those who are able to receive this, receive it. It's very similar to what he says at the end of his parables. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is an invitation for you to either reject the king and his kingdom ethics or receive the king and his kingdom ethics. Now, everything Jesus has said is hard to hear. It was hard to hear then. That's why the disciples said, who's able to do this? It's hard to hear now. But Jesus is only calling us to his good, wise, and loving design for gender, marriage, and sexuality because his design causes those things to flourish. And as they flourish, we get to experience the heavenly kingdom that God desires for us. But to receive it requires humility not natural to us. And that's why I think verses 13 through 15 are next. Would you look at them? Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Do you remember just a couple of weeks ago, Jesus answered the question, who is the greatest? And he said, whoever will become like a child in their humility. Similarly, only those, we are only capable of receiving Jesus' teaching on gender, marriage, and sexuality if we will come in humility. Lord, teach us truth and wisdom, even if it seems to contradict everything else we've seen and observed in our culture. So in this passage, we learn God's design for gender still exists. God's design for sexuality still exists. God's design for marriage still exists. And for the sake of the kingdom, we should come like a child, humbly receiving Jesus' design as truth, even if it means we have to fight and struggle against impulses we otherwise would have. So now let me talk about some misconceptions and objections. We're now at part two of the sermon. If you're a note taker, you can write these fast. Here's, I think, misconception number one. A common misconception in American culture is that Jesus will only say things that affirm what already makes me happy. Jesus will only say things that affirm what already makes me happy. On Saturday, we planned to play kickball at Kiwanis Park. I don't know if you've been there before. At Kiwanis Park, there's a baseball diamond. That's where we'll be playing kickball, Lord willing. But not far from that is a dog park. If halfway through the game, we ask the participants in the two to switch, it doesn't work very well. (laughs) Putting the dogs on an open diamond is not where they flourish. Putting the kickball game in the dog yard is not where it flourishes. God's design always includes boundaries and structures where those things flourish. God's design for gender is how gender flourishes. God's design for marriage is how marriage flourishes. God's design for sexuality is how sexuality flourishes. And you know that any time you tweak God's design, it actually is destructive. For example, in marital harmony, sexuality is wonderful. But if you are married and you try to expand it beyond that boundary, it's destructive to that relationship. The family has a structure that God's given it, a familial love that's wonderful. But if in a family, people, parents relate to children like a husband and wife would relate to them, it's child abuse. It's destructive. 
in filial relationships, relationships among friends. We have a level of intimacy that's great and glorious. But if we tried to relate on the playing field of marital relationships, we would destroy those friendships. Each structure has its own field, and on that field is where it thrives. All right, now misconception number two. Jesus never said anything against homosexuality. Have you heard that one before? Based on the passage we just read today, it is unambiguously clear that what God created from the beginning, Jesus affirms to the end as the Alpha and Omega. And don't forget, he said, he who created God the Father, Son, and Spirit in harmony, creating the world as it should be, which means that all of the pages of Scripture, not just the words in red, but all of them are the Word of God. And so what God says about homosexuality in 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, or Romans 1, 26 through 27, or 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, is what God, Jesus, and the Spirit all affirm together. But let me also be quick to say this. Those three passages that I just alluded to don't just talk about homosexuality. They talk about all sorts of sins of which all of us are guilty, which means that all of us should realize that everyone has to take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow Jesus. And if it's a lifelong struggle for you, that's okay. That's what the Bible calls repentance. Misconception number three, Jesus had nothing to say about gender identity. Well, in this passage, it's about as clear as it could get. From the beginning, he's created them male and female. But let me pause on the new word in our lexicon, gender identity. Based on the passage that we have in front of us, the truth that we have in front of us, gender is not a social construct, nor is it a self-perceived experience, but is a fixed and designed reality. Even, even unusual exceptions that are referred to in verses 10 through 12, like those who are eunuchs from birth, are still God's affirmed design. They are, in fact, part of what he has determined from eternity past. Therefore, the term gender identity is a non sequitur and grammatically speaking, an oxymoron. Your identity is not your gender or your sexuality. Your identity is who you are in relationship to your creator, which is why verse 12 says they became eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Now, Christians, though, let us be compassionate if we're talking to someone who's experiencing gender dysphoria. And let us remember that all of us are children of the fall, and we are all under the weight and struggle of sin. That lifelong battle is actually not unique to anyone, but is germane to all of us to take up our cross and follow him. Misconception number four, what I feel is who I am. Misconception number four, what I feel is who I am. But what I feel is not who I am. If what I feel was who I, was who I was, I would have the most pliable and insecure foundation possible. Praise the Lord, who I am is who I am in relationship to God. If this morning, through faith in Christ, you can call God Father and He calls you His child, that is the most fixed and secure identity of all, and that is how identity is made. Misconception number five, we're on the other end of the spectrum here. Misconception number five, some people wrongly assert that homosexuality or transgenderism is the worst or the unpardonable sin. But that is not true. The Bible tells us a wonderful and profound truth. Any sin is enough to separate us from a holy and sinless God. But every sin 
was paid by the Holy Son of God who went on the cross for us. And any sinner can be forgiven from all sin and reunited to God eternally through simple faith in Jesus, the Son of God. Misconception number six. This is a common one I hear. Josh, if we would just downplay sexual sin, it would help more people embrace Jesus. It would grow our church faster and we'd advance the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, if we are to downplay sexual sin, then we are not like our Savior, who in Matthew 5 said, pluck out your right eye, cut off your right hand, rather than going to hell with both. Or 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, which says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, verse 10 begins. And then it lists all of the ways we could choose sin to our eternal peril. But my favorite example of this recently is the story of Rosaria Butterfield. Let me quickly quickly tell you her testimony. She was raised and educated in a liberal Catholic setting, and Rosaria fell in love with the world of words. In her late 20s, she was allured by feminist philosophy and LGBTQ advocacy, and so she adopted a lesbian identity for herself. Rosaria earned her Ph.D. from Ohio State University, and as a Michigan fan, I was ready to reject her at that moment. (laughs) But then she served in the English Department and Women's Studies Program at Syracuse University from 1992 to 2002. Her primary academic field was critical theory, and she specialized in queer theory. And her historical focus was 19th century literature informed by Freud, Marx, and Darwin. She advised LGBTQ plus student groups, wrote Syracuse University's policy for same-sex couples, and actively lobbied for LTQ plus claims alongside her lesbian partner. In 1997, Rosario was researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against people like herself. And she wrote an article against the promise keepers. A response to that article triggered a meeting with Ken Smith, who became a resource on the religious right and their Bible, and he became a confidant and a friend. In 1999, as she was doing research to condemn the religious right and the promise keepers, she started reading the Bible on her own. And after reading large chunks of the Bible and receiving hospitality from a local Christian around the dinner table, the most unlikely thing happened. Rosaria Butterfield put her faith in Jesus Christ. She wrote about her conversion, I lost everything but the dog, but gained eternal life in Christ. (laughs) She later wrote, I learned the first rule of repentance, that repentance requires greater intimacy with God than with our sin. And how much greater? About the size of a mustard seed. In 2016, Rosaria Butterfield came to Wake Forest, South, uh, Wake Forest, North Carolina, and she lectured at Southeastern. She said many things there that I thought were outstanding, but this sentence in particular stuck with me. She said, homosexuality is a sin to be mortified, not a behavior to be modified. Had Rosaria never been told that, she never would have come to Christ. If you think that if we downplay sexual sin, it'll advance the kingdom, you are wrong. All right, now those were the, the misconceptions. Now let's go to the objections. Objection number one, Christians are homophobic. Christians are homophobic. Now let's pause on this objection for a second. Sadly, there are some who use the name Christ who are hateful to other people, and they do treat them with a sinful condescension and superiority. 
But actually, that's much closer to first century Pharisaism and legalism than it is to Christianity. Because Jesus told us in Matthew 7, we're not allowed to notice a speck in anyone until we deal with the beam in ourself. So no Christian should have a hateful, condescending stance toward anybody in any sin struggle at all because we have been saved by grace. But let me also go on to make this point. The gospel teaches us this. We are all so bad that only the perfect Son of God could save us. But the Son of God is so good that he did come to save any of us. So Christianity is not homophobic, though some who claim Christ are condescending. Christianity is gracious truth that diagnoses the disease we all have so that we can all find the same cure. Objection number two. Christians are repressive. Christians are denying people their true selves. Objection number two. Christians are denying people their true selves. I want to tell you about Beckett Cook. Um, I don't know if you followed this news story from last year. Last year, an actress named Ellen Page, who was a lesbian, changed her identity and changed her gender and now wants to be referred to as Elliot Page as a man. When she did that, Hillary Rodham Clinton was quick to tweet her support of Elliot's transition or Ellen's transition. Hillary Clinton tweeted this, It is wonderful to witness people becoming who they are. But interestingly, that support is not actually given to everyone. Beckett Cook, who was a homosexual man and then came to Christ, did not receive such a tweet for his transition. He wrote this, Is it really wonderful to witness people becoming who they are? Or is it only wonderful when the true self they discover fits the popular cultural narrative of the day? I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but do you realize that when people say be true to yourself, what they actually mean is do what the people in power want you to do because that's for our political gain? <laughs> no one wants you to be true to yourself. They want you to embrace the narrative they want advanced. So Beckett Cook writes this about his own testimony. I had a highly successful career as a production designer in the fashion world. I lived as a fully engaged gay man in Hollywood. I had many boyfriends over the years. I attended pride parades in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York, and I marched in innumerable rallies for gay marriage equality. My identity as a gay man was immutable, or so I thought. But in 2009, Beckett writes, I experienced something extraordinary. I had a radical encounter with Jesus Christ while attending an evangelical church in Hollywood. I was invited that week by a stranger who I met at a coffee shop. I walked into the church a gay atheist, and I walked out two hours later a born-again Christian in love with Jesus. I was stunned by the reversal. Since then, I no longer identify as gay, but rather choose to be celibate because I believe God's plan and purpose revealed in the Bible is authoritative, true, and good. He's acting out verse 12 of Matthew 19. He continues, surrendering my sexuality hasn't been easy. I still struggle with vestiges of same-sex attraction, but denying myself, taking up my cross, and following Jesus is an honor. Any struggles I experience pale in comparison to the joy of a personal relationship with the one who created me and gives my life meaning. My identity is no longer in my sexuality, it's in Jesus. When I came out as a Christian to my friends in L.A. and New York, I was met with skepticism and outright hostility. 
In 2019, I published my memoir and I lost my closest lifelong friends. My production design agency dropped me like a hot potato, even though I was their top earning artist. Of course, if my memoir had been a celebration of my gay identity, I would have had more advertising and editorial clients beating down my doors. But in contrast to Elliot Page, who only gained approval and favor, I lost friends and my livelihood. Now, to be clear, Beckett says, I'm not complaining or being a victim. What I've gained in Christ is absolutely priceless. And like Paul, I count everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Those loss of close friendships and lucrative career was harsh, but being in the kingdom of God more than compensates. I'm royalty, an heir to God and a fellow heir with Christ, and in contrast to Paige, my joy is not fragile because it does not depend on the affirmation of others. Instead, my joy is secure because I'm in Christ and favorable in the sight of God, whose approval is all that ultimately matters. Objection number three. But Josh, don't you know that there are churches that affirm homosexuality and transgenderism? Don't you know that there are churches with lesbian preachers? Shouldn't we just do that? Yesterday we had the joy of giving um, six students from India a tour of Raleigh, and it was great. I got to learn a lot of things about Raleigh during that tour. During the tour, I was keeping mental note of all the churches that I drove by that have the name Church, or have the name Christian, or have the name Jesus, and right next to their marquee has a symbol that is a way in our culture of opposing everything Jesus says in Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12, as well as other places. I simply want to point out to you this morning that churches in Raleigh that affirm the destruction of God's design are at enmity and opposition with Jesus, no matter how many stained glass windows, uh, crosses, or steeples they have. The reality is, if you oppose what Jesus affirms, then you need to hear what Jesus says two chapters ago when he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. Objection number four. Well, Josh, don't you know Christians were on the wrong side of history in the civil rights movement? And so surely we're on the wrong side of history again in the sexual rights movement. Now, there's a lot I could say here. Let me encourage you to read Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, Confronting Christianity. I'm going to mainly refer to her answer in my answer here to objection number four. She shows very good evidence from the research of Lisa Diamond, who's a psychology professor who has shown that the LGBTQ community is not nearly as monolithic as is often reported. But now let me give you to the five answers she gives. First, unlike ethnic identity or racial heritage, sexual activity at least involves choice. Even if you were to argue that you can't control your attractions, you can have some say in your actions sexually, but you can't in your ethnic identity. Therefore, to compare them is illegitimate. Number two, even though 20th century scientists have worked really hard to show biological differences between ethnicities, they've always failed at doing so. But we have obvious biological differences between our genders, and those are very relevant when it comes to conversation about sex. So again, to compare them is illegitimate. Third, we're often told that if you're opposed to the same-sex revolution, you're hateful and you're a bigot. 
But in fact, surveys show that it's almost always upper-class white Westerners who have this position. So globally, in the diverse community, almost no one actually thinks that this is a good revolution. Number four, while the Bible cuts strongly and emphatically in favor of racial equality and integration, it cuts equally strongly against same-sex relationships. She writes, Christian perspective teaches that it is consistent to support racial equality, racial integration, and mixed race marriages, and yet also oppose same-sex marriage. Fifth, she says opposition to homosexuality or homosexual sex is common in the two largest global worldviews, Christianity and Islam. And so thus to argue that history is irrevocably moving towards this revolution is probably not accurate. Now, what Rebecca McLaughlin shares is very helpful. You should read it on your own. But here's what I would say in my own words. If someone argues, Josh... We're on the wrong side of history. I would simply say this. In the past, when those in the name of Christ were racist, they were on the wrong side of Scripture. And today, if you promote same-sex relationships, you remain on the wrong side of Scripture. Whether or not we're on the right side of history is not nearly as important as whether or not we're on the right side of Scripture. Finally, let us remind this morning that though what Jesus has to say here is a lot of hard and direct truth, It is not truth given without grace. Because Matthew does not end in chapter 19. As Matthew unfolds, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life will follow a way that leads to Calvary, will cause the truth to be fulfilled in his death, and will give his life so that all of us who are spiritually dead can have eternal life that can never be taken. So this morning, if you're concerned that what Jesus has to say seems too hard to hear, and at the end when he says, are you willing to receive this, you're inclined towards rejection. Remember that Jesus, who is saying this hard truth, also loves you more than any being in the universe and cares to rescue you from the domain of darkness and bring you into the kingdom of light. So, what will we deny for the sake of the kingdom? We only deny what we find as an urge or impulse if we realize that the kingdom of heaven is like the treasure hidden in the field. And when he who finds it realizes its value, he goes and enjoys, sells all that he had so that he can gain that invaluably more precious treasure. Let's look to the Lord this morning in prayer. Dear God, I thank you that you have designed beauty, truth, and goodness from the beginning. And Lord, not very long after that, in our sinful rebellion, we have been corrupting your good design. And so it's really not a new problem for humans to try to corrupt and warp what you have made good. But perhaps in our American cultural moment, there's more hostility to the clear words of Jesus than there has ever been, at least in this country. We do live in a country now, Lord, where many people have a church that uses Jesus' name and yet regularly deny and contradict what Jesus actually says. And so it's understandable that there would be much confusion in our culture. I pray, Lord, that you would accomplish by the power of your Spirit what we all stand in need of. Give us ears to hear. 
give us humility that makes us poor in spirit and allows us to come like a child. But Lord, even when we can't fully grasp things that seem complex, help us to trust the heart of the one who so loved the world that he sent his only son so that we would not perish but have eternal life. So remind us, Lord, that your posture towards the world, as you said in the next verse, was not to condemn the world, but so that the world through your son might be saved. So these are the words of the creator who cares for each and every human he's made. These are the words of a person who loves us to the point of giving his life for us. So I pray if someone needs to know how to have a relationship with God today, that they would be willing to do what Rosaria did, to do what Beckett did, to find Jesus the treasure in the field that's more valuable than the sin they once cherished. But Lord, that's the call for all of us, whatever our inclinations or proclivities are. So give us the grace today to receive truth and to be shaped by it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.